from GreenBiz Group. Welcome to this week's edition of 350. I'm Joel McCower here at GreenBiz headquarters at 350 Frank Ogawa Plaza in downtown Oakland, California. On this week's edition, how one company single-handedly cut Denmark's emissions in half, why the car of the future will ride on open source, Wells Fargo banks on cleantech startups, and taming the tsunami of ocean plastics. It's a package deal this week on 350. It's March 30th, 2018. Welcome to this week's edition of Green Biz 350. Joining me as always is Editorial Director Heather Clancy. Hello, Heather. Hello, Joel. It's great to not see, unfortunately, not see you, um, but it's great to talk to you. It's always great to to not see me. Yeah, I know. (laughs) I get that a lot. Uh, How was your week? My week has been pretty good. We we, uh, have not had any snow, which is quite um, wonderful. It seems to be spring-like. I see leaves popping out. Um, I've had a great sort of uh, week catching up from our, our wonderful meetings last week. And, uh, in tons California. and tons of Yep, in California. I have tons and tons and tons of stories I'm working on. Too many stories. I, I can't even figure out which one to write first. Um, but I haven't been traveling this week, which is pretty, um, pretty nice. Uh, but I understand you've been on the road. Well, I was up in Sacramento for just the day on Tuesday, uh, along with Katie Fehrenbacher, senior writer and analyst on transportation. And Katie and I were at the CalStart Summit. CalStart is a, a California-based organization that's increasingly going national and even global, looking at uh, advanced transportation technologies. And I have to say, it was it was pretty heartening um, what's going on out there. You know, just to remember both the enormity of the task and the fast pace of change. I mean, this was, you know, looking at autonomous, shared, electric, connected vehicles and, uh, and, and where they're going, but not just the vehicles themselves and not just cars, but also uh, freight and logistics, uh, the medium and heavy-duty vehicles, looking at the policy needs and looking at jobs and how much, you know, companies like Tesla and BYD and Proterra, the number of jobs that are being created, not just in California, but around. I have an interview a little bit later in the show with John Bozell, the president and CEO of, of CalStart. But I guess what, one of the tech takeaways is, you know, that tr- for all of the changes in cars that we've seen over the past, well, our lifetimes, really, uh, just, you know, in terms of all the technologies that have, that have come along, transportation really hasn't changed that much in in almost a century. It's still kind of the same types of vehicles, the same kinds of fuels, same kinds of roads traveling at the same kinds of speeds, operating on the same kinds of policies that are done at the local and national levels. And finally, that's really going to start to change. And that's what's evident by sitting here listening to the speakers at, at, at the CalSTART conference, or pretty much any conference. We, yeah, we've been talking about this, you know, again, the autonomous, connected, shared electric vehicles, but it's really much bigger than that in terms of the connected and integrated mobility systems and, and, and just how everything is changing. So, and, and the language is changing, you know, policy is changing. It, it's really starting to take off. So 
I was impressed, and, and a lot of the companies that are in the room uh, are doing some significant things with their fleets, and so it's uh, it's really going to be interesting to watch. Yeah, you don't have to. I'm just going to plug some uh, an article I'm working on because of doing a lot of interviews in the last week for a piece on the the infrastructure, right? The electric vehicle charging infrastructure and the involvement of utilities in that. And so, yeah, I mean, there's so much, so many initiatives going on and in so many different places, by the way, not just in California, which is great to hear. Um, uh, and stay tuned for more on that because there is a lot of going on. Um, this electricity, if it's the fuel of the future, then utilities are going to be involved. So looking at that very closely. Yeah, and, it, and again, it's just it's not just cars, and it's not just trucks, and it's not just buses. You know, it's also um, off-road vehicles, which are things like cranes and tractors and construction equipment and forklifts and the tugs, those little vehicles that push airplanes around on airports, and the electrification of all of that, or fuel cells, and and how all of that is is these sort of medium-duty or heavy-duty vehicles. Uh, are, are joining the already, you know, existing parade of passenger vehicles that, uh, you know, every car company is now, you know, pivoting to. It's just, it's just going to be an interesting revolution over the next five, 10, certainly 20 years. So again, more on that later in the show. Um, but um, I also spent, I have to say, uh, a b- bunch of Wednesday at a little company in San Francisco called Google, had some great conversations there about a lot of really very cool things they're doing that hopefully we'll be writing and talking more about that on, on the pages of GreenBiz and at our upcoming Verge conference. So with that, let's hop over to the Week in Review. So let's start, as we left off a minute ago, with uh, transportation. And we ran this piece this week, basically a Q&A, with Tim Hang Lu, who's the uh, founder and CEO of Open Motors, a company that was formerly known as OS Vehicle, which is I just really interesting, you know, looking at how the technology uh, for vehicles is going to open source. So their assumption is that, as we've been seeing, there's going to be a shift away from ownership to service of vehicles, so vehicles as a service or mobility as a service. And, and in this new paradigm, the way cars are made are, is going to change because our priorities as consumers are going to change. We'll care less about uh, maybe about big car brands and pay more attention to the quality of the service and how we're getting from, from, from hither to yon. So they're trying to not to sell vehicles to consumers, but to sell vehicles to companies that offer mobility as a service. So I think it's one of the first companies that is creating purpose-built vehicles for the experience, not the ownership uh, of, of cars. Yeah, and I think the thing for me in this particular Q&A that I really hadn't thought about, but of course makes a ton of sense, is the concept of ownership, right? So it matters what you're driving a car for. So if you're using a car as an Uber driver, um, and you're all over the place, the lifespan of your vehicle might be a lot, lot less than the 10 years that people normally assume, right? So you buy a car, if you buy it outright, I guess the car companies assume you're going to have it about 10 years. Well, it turns out in the ride-sharing model that it's maybe two years, right? Because you're using it much more heavily. The other thing that really, really resonated with me and um, kind of is my background as a, as a journalists focusing on computers, sort of the idea of plug and play, right? So 
this particular um, philosophy, I'm going to read just a little bit from the interview, but um, for us, the car of the future should be more like an airplane designed and engineered for services and heavy use. And the key here part here is, is putting that right into the design. So just like after several flights, you can replace turbines, the entire cockpit technology, change the interior and so forth, you might be able to do that with cars. So the modularity, plug and play, um, being, the ability to upgrade a vehicle, um, sort of, you know, just bring it in and upgrade it. Um, that just fascinates me. And you can't do that right now because everything is so proprietary and um, open source could really, really change how how um, these large, you know, companies own and, and manage their fleets for people like you and me that might not want to own the car, but might want to rent it. Or by the way, I'm saying car could be something completely different. Um, but a scooter, uh, I actually saw some scooters when I was in Oakland <laughs> recently, but um, yeah, but anyway, um, it doesn't matter what the shape is, the vehicle, um, just the fact is that it, it could be modularized and, and changed and, and uh, you know, sort of midstream, if you will. And, and sticking in this uh, quasi theme of this show on transportation, although we'll get to some other topics in a minute, the aforementioned Katie Fernbacher uh, wrote another piece about about Uberpool, which is the effort by Uber. It is also a similar one, Liftline from Lyft and, and Via, uh, another company that are looking at how do you uh, how do you create carpools? And and the interesting stat I think is that the rates of carpooling in the United States actually have dropped uh, in in over the past couple of decades, even though transportation planners have been trying to get you know more more people on the roads with fewer cars. But Katie reported uh, about a, an event actually just a few hundred feet from our office uh, recently, the Bay Area Alt, Alt Car Conference, and she talked with with Dan Sperling, who. I also saw this week at the Cal Start. He's really one of the original thinkers and and leading thinkers on on sustainable transportation up at UC Davis. He has a new book out called Three Revolutions that that sort of gets into how he sees everything changing and and so where transportation is gonna gonna be going quickly. But um, yeah, the Uber Pool is another piece of this that you know how do you get people out of their solo cars and into their whatever these vehicles are going to be, whether they're going to be vans or, you know, some other kind of vehicle. So this is uh, a model that's trying to break through. Moving from transportation to another techie theme, uh, we I'd like to flag a story that we ran this week called Why Wells Fargo's Clean Tech Incubator is a Hit. Um, it's a, about a corporate uh, incubation program that Wells Fargo runs um, in, in collaboration, actually, with Na the National Renewable Energy Lab in, in Colorado. So the idea of the incubator um, is twofold. One is that uh, Wells Fargo gets to look at things that might help its sustainability program. So energy management technologies, um, microgrid technologies, things that it might want to use in its branches or in its corporate buildings to improve its sustainable business operations, right? So how, how it's operating, it's how it's how efficient it is and so forth. So that's part part one. But part two is the idea that maybe they could um, give these startups a platform for spinning out on their own. So they get, as part of this program, a grant. And most of that goes towards helping the researchers work 
with the companies. Um, the startups don't give up equity, but then they get to work with some great uh, partners like George, uh, Greentown Labs, the Federal Advanced Research Projects Energy uh, Agency, um, Energy Program, and so forth. So it's a, it's a cool program. There were, um, let's see, there's been five companies that have tested their technology so far at Wells Fargo. One of them is called Whisker Labs, and what they make is uh, home energy management technology. So it, it's something that helps um, track appliance efficiency and so forth. And Whisker was bought actually a couple of years ago by Earth Networks, but it has been uh, spun out since since then. So that's one company. Um, the other program is, um, the program is also working with a company called Go Electric. It's a renewable energy microgrid developer, and uh, they're testing projects with uh, Hawaiian Electric, which is interesting because of Verge Hawaii coming up soon. So anyway, I mean, the, the, the idea is, and we've seen a lot of cleantech incubator programs, but this one really has a very practical bent. And so I wanted to flag that story because it might be a model for some of our other readers. And Wells Fargo certainly could use some positive press given all the other press it's been getting lately. So this is uh, good to see them doing some, uh, some, some really interesting things. And, but I think also want to point out that one of the benefits to the companies, there have been 20 companies so far that have gone uh, into the accelerator, is that um, Wells Fargo offers up some of its banking branches uh, as commercial customers to try out the technologies and gain real-world experience with a large corporation and that has the potential, obviously, to scale across, I don't know how many hundreds or thousands of branches. I did not look that up before we got into this conversation, but I'm sure it's a lot. And so I think that's a, that's a really interesting piece of this, is how uh, do companies not just fund these um, innovative startups, but also get them through that proverbial valley of death where they actually get to commercialization by uh, investing, but also licensing, testing, piloting um, a, a lot of the technologies. I think that's a, a model that we need to see a lot more of. And as we wrote about in the State of Green Business Report in 2018, this year's report, uh, about financing the transition and how are we going to you know, get all of these technologies to market? How are we going to accelerate the markets that already exist? How are we going to fund the transitions that are required under the, the, the Sustainable Development Goals and the Paris Two Degree Commitments? Um, this is one small but significant model for how companies can get directly involved. And you probably don't need to be a big bank uh, to do this because we're actually just talking about well, it's a $30 million program, so that's not something that you need to literally own the money to do. So the last story I'd like to flag in our Week in Review segment is a piece that uh, came in from our pals at the We Mean Business group. Um, it's from Jennifer Gearholt, and it's called Meet the Company that Single-Handedly Halved One Country's Carbon Dioxide Emissions. And I, um, there's a reason that the company's name isn't in the headline, because it's a company that actually um, has just rebranded itself. Orsted, uh, it's the, the big Danish uh, utility company, uh, used to be known, formerly known as Dong Energy, D-O-N-G Energy. Um, and this, this piece is about how they've made this amazing switch from being a primarily coal-fired um, power organization, power company, to being a huge wind operator. So offshore wind operator, I believe they're ranked as like the, the world's biggest offshore wind 
company with capacity of 3.9 gigawatts. So the piece is about how that move, basically, you know, this company was doing it, a utility company, obviously, for, for, its, for its business reasons, but it managed to, at the same time, help Denmark reduce its carbon dioxide um, emissions levels by ha- more than a half during the last 10 years. So, so the period that they're looking at is from 2006 to about uh, 2016. Anyway, um, so that was number one. But what the headline doesn't tell you is that, um, in fact, Orsted's net profit jumped 53% during last year, which is is a big slap in the face for anyone that says, oh, you know, coal coal companies and oil and gas companies can't can't do this because they'll lose all their profits and so forth. So this is like a big, you know, probably um, one of those sort of caught not cautionary tales, but celebratory tales um, of how a company that was incredibly dependent on coal and um, and and fossil fuels has really made that transition. It took a long time. It took you know we're talking twelve. It started in twenty. Uh, 2006, but um, it, this is one of those stories that makes you makes you uh, believe in <laughs> in puppies and so forth, right? It makes you happy. It's one of those great stories that I love telling because um, the company's name used to be Danish Oil and Natural Gas. Yeah, and um, I don't know about the puppies. I missed that part of the story, but uh, yeah, I think uh, Orsted, as it's now called, is. Um, is a company to watch, and it's they're they branching well outside of uh, of the original home turf of Denmark. In fact, they're setting up uh, or, or moving more aggressively into uh, the North American market, and 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 we'll be seeing a lot more of Orsted. They've got, um, I think, a great team, a, a young CEO, uh, Henrik uh, Polson, uh, and uh, I, I've been talking with some of their executives. I met with. One of them at the Green Biz Conference in February, and they seem to have their eyes set on being a global player uh, in renewable energy. And they seem to obviously have have done what needs to be done uh, on their home turf. And the question is, you know, how how much can they transport that uh, or export that uh, to the rest of the world? So, uh, Orsted Energy, let's uh, let's keep our eye on them. As I said earlier in the show, we spent part of this week at the CalStart Clean Transportation Summit up in Sacramento. Spent a few minutes with John Bozell, the president and CEO of CalStart. Uh, John, first of all, how is the feeling this year around clean transportation compared to just one year ago? I think there's a sense that the, the industry is really gaining momentum. Uh, people are much more commercially oriented. We're getting away from a strict focus on public policy and more on real market opportunities and there's just a I think a greater sense of competition in the room among uh, manufacturers and suppliers. So unlike say in the uh, renewable energy industry uh, the the Washington politics and some state politics isn't really affecting the uh, clean transportation world? I think there's uh, so much momentum here in California that people see they're, they're moving ahead. This market in the state is, is enormous. And then I think enough of these manufacturers are global players that they see that what we're doing here in California is much more similar to what's happening globally uh, versus what's happening in Washington. So I think um, our member companies see a lot of opportunity and they're really pushing ahead hard. 
So CalStart is started in California, but I know your ambitions have extended beyond the state uh, nationally, and I don't know, maybe even beyond. How much of what's going on in California, the, the leadership, five million vehicles in, a, in a 2025, I think, uh, or you, you'll correct 2030. me, 2030, um, are, and, and some of the other initiatives taking place here to support clean transportation are transferable to other states, or is this sort of an only in California kind of thing? I, I think a lot of what we're doing here can be transferred by other to other states. Uh, we now have offices in, in New York and Colorado. Soon we'll be opening one in Michigan. So I am excited about the opportunity for us to grow the market uh, in other states. I'm also just really excited about the opportunity to work with more companies in other states, and even it's to help them to tap into the California market, because that's, that's a big market. And then we are starting to really look at what are the beachhead markets uh, that we could really grow here in California and then partner globally to try to uh, expand and build those markets. So we are trying to really start uh, thinking more globally with our member companies. I've noticed a uh, growing emphasis on uh, medium and, and heavy duty vehicles, the trucks, basically. Um, we, we have uh, trucks and buses and we have Proterra and BYD, the Chinese company, uh, doing business here in California. They're both here at the event. Um, that seems to be coming along much more quickly, the, the trucks that, you know, obviously Tesla and others, uh, but many others are, are looking at these technologies. Um, what do you see around those technologies in terms of how fast they're going to be coming to market? You know, I, I think that market is, is really starting to, to take off. The, the players who are there now are real players. They're well capitalized. They have really good technology. The cost of batteries are coming down. Um, you can just see it in, in the competition and feel it with, with the fleets. And the fleets have already put in orders for, for the Tesla vehicles. There's another Chinese company that people haven't heard much about, but a company by the name of Change. They're partnered with Ryder and are starting to deploy zero emission uh, delivery vans around the state. Um, so there's a lot of activity and you're really starting to see the fleet step up because they see a real economic business case with the incentives helping them to lower the purchase cost and then the operating cost being so much lower than diesel, particularly the maintenance costs, very attractive to the commercial fleets. Yeah. And then the transit companies too. Uh, the buses are, are certainly a part of that. Uh, is that getting the, uh, the momentum that you would expect? You know, the, the bus market is really actually taking off faster than, than some of the other segments. Um, and what we're seeing are now players in the bus market wanting to take their technology and deploy it into the truck market. So, you know, if you look back about 15 years ago, natural gas was really developed in the transit market and then slowly made its way, uh, the engines, into the truck market. I think we're going to see a much faster uh, transition here as a technology that's developed for the zero emission bus market is more quickly transferred over to the truck market. Um, so that is a really exciting opportunity. It really seems that fleets in general, uh, corporate, uh, transit, uh, government, uh, others, uh, are really driving this market uh, as much or more so than the consumers. What would you like corporate fleet owners to know about what's going on? Um, and, and what do you see that's taking place here at this summit that, that's really indicative of that? Well, I, I think the fleets, I think, look around at their peers and, and you look at some of the fleets who are now putting in orders for, for zero emission, near zero emission uh, trucks, you know, they're big names, PepsiCo, UPS, FedEx, 
Walmart. Um, you know, these fleets are, are, are really getting serious. They're, they're not putting in initial orders for thousands, but tens or even more than 100. And I think once they really uh, get these trucks in their fleet, they get comfortable with them, I think we're going to see a really uh, steep ramp up. And we're forecasting uh, in, in California like a tenfold increase over the next three years of the, the zero emission truck and bus market. So this is really going to start taking off. Uh, and I would say that we're, we're lagging on the bus market behind China. They're already well ahead of us. Uh, so uh, it's a very exciting space. And we're also working to try to get the, uh, with the Public Utilities Commission, make sure we can get the rates right and help with, get the utilities help in investing in the infrastructure, which is a key issue. So it sounds like your advice to corporations is go buy one and get some experience and then build from there. Yeah, and, and you know, look, look around, see what your, your peers are doing, and, and uh, there are some, some really good opportunities. And, uh, uh, you know, this is on the maintenance costs, is, the maintenance side of it, there is really going to be some huge savings. N- no brake repairs, no fluid repairs. Uh, these motor, the electric motors will last for a very long time, maybe diesel life equivalent, million miles uh, or better. So uh, it's, it's really, there's going to be an attract, very attractive business uh, proposition here for the fleets. Well, it's an exciting space, as you proved here at the summit. Uh, John Bozell, president and CEO of CalStart, thanks for taking a few minutes. Thank you, Joel. Hi, this is your Green Biz 350 co-host, Heather Clancy. In June, the Harvard Business School will add a brand new course focused on corporate sustainability. The certificate program called Sustainable Business Strategy aims to help students gain an appreciation for the role that corporate actors can play in addressing climate change. It will feature case studies from companies like consumer products giant Unilever and King Arthur Flower, a baking goods company in Vermont that has made a deep commitment to sustainable agriculture. The course is being taught by Harvard University professor Rebecca Henderson, who also serves on the National Bureau of Economic Research and the Harvard Climate Change Task Force. I caught up with Rebecca about the new course, and here's that interview. So I would like to start with the the pretty obvious question of what prompted the decision to add this course. You know, what was the motivator? Sure. There are really two reasons. The first is that the elective MBA course on which this is based, which we first started teaching five years ago, um, has become one of the most popular second-year courses at the Harvard Business School. We enrolled nearly 300 people the uh, last time I taught it, and we expect to enroll 400 this coming year. That's nearly half of the second-year class. So I was blown away, really. When I first launched the course, I had 28 people in the room. And I thought, you know, how many Harvard MBA students are going to take a course on how uh, purpose-driven business can really help to change the world and, and tackle some of the big problems we face? But the students are immensely engaged. And uh, what's interesting is they're both sort of very hopeful and very excited and very cynical. Um, They know how hard it is. And given what you do, you know this too. It's easy to talk about, but sometimes hard to put into practice, uh, really making a difference in the wider system. So we had fabulous student interest. And added to that, um, you know, I'm a a raging greenie. I'm all over these issues. I think um, one of the things we need to do is reach 
hundreds of thousands of managers with the idea that tackling these problems can uh, both lead to profitable business and make a big difference. So, uh, so I feel as if we're trying to do our little bit in the broader movement, as it were, to, to try and reach people and, and give them the tools they need to act. So this course is uh, 15 to 20 hours of material. Um, three week period. So I'm, you could go, you could do a lot of different things with that time. So what themes will you prioritize? <laughs> so there are three, okay, four big themes. <laughs> the first theme is it's possible to make money while tackling the big problems like environmental degradation and poverty and inequality. So your basic, there's money to be made at scale. Uh, billions of dollars worth of money. And so the course goes through the core business models that enable a firm to do that and links it to some very powerful examples in action. So that's the first theme. The second theme is, whoa, wait, that's not going to be enough to solve these problems. It's uh, critical that firms reach out and start to cooperate with each other and with allies so that addressing these major problems becomes pre-competitive. And here, um, the course focuses on initiatives like the Sustainable Palm Oil Initiative, which initially Unilever embraced just because it was the right thing to do, but then found that if they were the only firm using sustainable palm oil, that put them at a competitive disadvantage. So they pulled together, as you may know, a coalition of the willing to say, okay, nobody's going to use, you know, we're all going to use sustainable palm oil. And that means that together the, uh, the industry can tackle uh, the problem of deforestation and the, the other problems inherent in, in growing palm oil unsustainably. You can see similar things in the textile industry, in corruption, in mining. These are examples where firms come together to address critical problems. Uh, the course looks at one firm's efforts, for example, to improve the educational ecosystem in which it's embedded, uh, bringing together every firm in the industry to say, look, we, we've, we've got to upgrade what we have. So the second theme is of cooperation with competitors, with NGOs, um, and with others. Things like climate change and, uh, and inequality are massive public goods problems. So the key issue is, is how do we solve the, cooperative, uh, the collective action problem? So you know, the second theme is, okay, let's, uh, let's solve the collective action problem by, by acting together. The, uh, the third theme is, okay, we can solve some collective action problems at the industry and regional level because there's a clear business case for doing so. But some of the problems we face are at the world level, and we need to start thinking about global governance and shifting the entire system. And what would it take to do that? How do we sustain um, a cooperative equilibrium? How do we keep us all working together to do the right thing? What other tools can we focus on? And uh, the course looks at uh, three tools in particular. It looks at changing finance, adopting ESG metrics, why you might do that, why it might be useful, the role of the universal investors, so investors who have to hold the entire portfolio of the world and can't diversify away from problems like climate change. Um, it looks at changing governance structures, so maybe if we uh, shift how we think about the role of shareholder value maximization and the role of the firm, maybe that will help uh, 
help the, uh, the entire system. And lastly, looks at government. Um, and what is the role of government at this time? How can the private sector support governments in putting in place uh, the appropriate kinds of support and regulation that will enable us to address these big problems? And it looks at that both at the national level and at the international level, again, drawing on examples like the Global Compact and, uh, and the Universal Principles on Human Rights. Um, and the last theme, four themes, is, uh, is the role of, I call it, you know, bringing your values to work, what it means to be a purpose-driven leader in this environment, and how purpose-driven leaders can help to catalyze these sort of three important components of change by, uh, by acting on their values in a, in a smart and thoughtful way. We'll go back to the companies you picked in a moment, but I, I'm curious, do you, you outlined who's taking the, the sustainable business um, classes as part of the core MBA curriculum. Uh, you know, are you going to be reaching a, a different audience with this digital course? You know, it, it, who do you hope to reach? So um, we're hoping to reach young managers who are intrigued by the idea of making a difference in the world, um, but need some concrete sort of business-friendly tools as to how to do this. So I'm, uh, I'm hoping that primarily it will be managers in their late 20s and 30s who are reaching out in this direction. Um, I hope you know, I hope we might get more senior managers too. I'm just being realistic about their time commitments. As people get more senior, it gets a little wild and crazy. But uh, but basically, we're trying to reach uh, managers who might be intrigued by this, like to learn more. I think we might also see a few NGOs um, interested in this course because NGOs play a major role as in in really supporting and uh, and working with business in 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 this kind of shift. Mm-hmm. So I, I can imagine we might get some uh, some some NGO interest as well. Got it. Now you mentioned Unilever as an example of a company that that you'll hold up um, during the course. Who else are you going to be talking about? What what makes those examples unique or or worthy of em- emulation? Do they have anything in common? Um, that's interesting. So every firm in the course has two things in common. One is they are um, run by a leadership team that's very committed to making a difference um, against a major social or environmental problem. So we look at uh, uh, Unilever, as you said. We look at uh, a small startup called Transatomic, which is uh, based in Boston and run by some MIT graduates and is trying to, uh, to change the nuclear power industry. We look at a firm called Norske Venning, which is a, a waste handling firm in Norway, and look at uh, how their commitment to really building a circular economy is shaping their strategy. So every firm we look at is, uh, is focused hard on making a difference against some social problem. And then the other characteristic they share is that they're all run by savvy business people. <laughs> and they have exciting business models that um, are enabling the firm to thrive. And uh, that, that, for me, is absolutely central it, in the choice of the firms that we focus on, is that they're successful business people as well as inspiring leaders. 
Hi, I'm Elsa Wenzel, Managing Editor at GreenBiz. Janice Searles-Jones, CEO of the Ocean Conservancy, likes to talk about the art of the possible. You might say she needs to look at things that way because her job is to attack threats like ocean acidification and plastic waste, the kind that may look on the surface pretty impossible to solve. And yet, the group's trash-free seas initiative with corporate partners including Coca-Cola and Dow aims to dramatically cut the flow of marine plastic waste from choke points in Asia. And its annual International Coastal Cleanup Day, going on three decades now, sweeps up hundreds of millions of pounds of garbage from coastlines every year with the help of volunteers. The Ocean Conservancy's power lies both in its science-based approach and the many, many partnerships it makes with corporations and other groups to extend its reach. Searles Jones, a longtime environmental lawyer, has been in the top role at the Ocean Conservancy for about a year and with the group for about a decade. I caught up with her this past winter, and she was describing some of the biggest problems the Ocean Conservancy is working on right now. Uh, most scientists now would tell you that climate change um, is the biggest concern from an ocean perspective, and there is a whole host of impacts. You've seen a lot of uh, media lately about coral bleaching, for example, and so you have the increased temperature on the one hand, you have increased ocean acidification on the other hand, and that has a variety of impacts both for you know, shell-building animals that live in the ocean, things that eat those shell-building animals, where fish and marine wildlife live, how their habitat is changing, and then for all of those coastal communities that either rely on those resources for their economies or um, rely on that natural protection um, that the ocean and coral reefs have provided from storm surges and things like that. So climate change is definitely uh, in the fore. And for, for our readers, the, the vast majority of whom work in corporate sustainability, what would you say is the greatest opportunity for the business community um, in terms of helping preserve the oceans? Mm-hmm. Um, I would say in almost every sense, there is a role for uh, sort of a corporate sustainability professional to both think about the ocean when they're setting their sustainability goals and then to meet their sustainability goals through uh, an ocean lens. And there's sort of a, a variety of ways to intersect with ocean interests. One of them, uh, and one that we have been, which sort of started our corporate engagement almost three decades ago, is through the International Coastal Cleanup, which is a great way for corporations uh, to engage their employees, provide a volunteer opportunity that invests in local communities, gets people out touching the ocean, thinking about um, the ocean, uh, and how trash and plastic impacts marine wildlife and those coastal economies that rely on clean beaches and things like that. And as we have been working on the international coastal cleanup with our corporate partners for so many years, we are definitely seeing um, sort of an evolution from things an employee engagement lens, shifting to a sustainability lens, becoming part of the C-suite conversation about um, brand risk and how corporations position themselves as far as sustainability goes and recognizing that there are a lot of long-term interest uh, in ocean conservation. And so in addition to things like the cleanup, that's what prompted us to launch the Trash Free Seas Alliance, a desire with our corporate partners to not just clean up beaches every year, which is critically important 
um, to engage people in an ocean conservation conversation, but also to get ahead of that problem to move upstream and start stopping plastic before it ever enters into the ocean. Um, so that's a huge opportunity for corporations right now, particularly when plastics are such a salient and relevant issue right now in the public conversation. What should businesses know if they would like to get involved with the Ocean Conservancy? From a plastics perspective, we only work with the best corporations and they have to be committed. And we have a decision matrix that we apply to our corporate engagement, much like we do when we decide to take on any programmatic issue. Um, so we're really looking for where does the desire to affect change originate? Does it come from the top? Is sustainability um, or a commitment to a certain issue central to the way that partner operates and makes decisions? Can they help us solve a problem? Will their involvement bring around real meaningful change? You know, how invested are they? How willing are they to have hard conversations um, and to push the art of the possible? And so those are some of the things we, we go through when we're talking with corporations um, and building those partnerships and developing those trusted relationships. So we've been thinking a lot about um, the incredible medium that is the ocean and how it is it does touch people's hearts and minds and is inspiring. And there is so much awe and wonder in the ocean and trying to figure out how to connect that more thoughtfully to some of the policy work that we do and to try to become more relevant in people's everyday lives. And we've looked at a lot of different other sort of social change campaigns out there in the world. And one of the ones that um, one has to take real inspiration from is the Freedom to Marry campaign, um, where you look at how, um, how that issue was faring on a state-by-state -state level and how that issue was polling nationally. And that campaign had a real hard conversation with itself about how they were reaching people and how they were having conversations with people and did a lot of really careful thought and analysis to figure out um, that what people related to um, was love and freedom mm -hmm. and not so much uh, rights um, and sort of the legal part of things. And when they rethought the campaign and re um, executed a strategy against what people had been telling them they care about, which is love, um, it really changed the outcome. And I have not seen sort of a, a, a social change movement happen that rapidly. Uh, it's really extraordinary when you look at it. And so we definitely um, are always interested in being as smart and strategic as possible and taking lessons learned from um, all issues in all sectors. And that's one that's particularly intriguing because it went to core values. And so one of the things that we're doing is having a much more fundamental conversation with ocean constituents about what their core values are and what they care about. So many campaigns around environmental conservation or climate change awareness are about doom and gloom or fire and brimstone or they're fear-based. Yeah. Um, yeah. And or they're very wonky. So how, how do you make the, the, the shift from that fear to love and freedom? <laughs> yeah. um, that is a great question, and we are, we are working on that um, sort of in earnest right now. I will say what people, um, everybody wants 
clean air, clean water, clean beaches. I mean, those are core human fundamental values and things that people view as being sort of the basic condition um, for being able to exist, right? Nobody wants Mm -hmm. to drink dirty water. Nobody wants their kids to drink dirty water. Nobody wants to breathe polluted air. And so part of our challenge is to recognizing that that is what people care about and that the ocean plays a huge role in both of those things. How do we figure out how to be much, um, much smarter in terms of talking to people about that? And so me not talking about the maximum sustainable um, yield for a particular fish stock when what somebody cares about um, is whether or not um, they have a clean and healthy environment and, and ways to translate that. Because we do, um, we in the advocacy sector, and you're exactly right, can really focus on the problem part of the equation and not so much on the solution part of the equation. And the solution part is where you do get um, at hearts and minds. And so um, focusing in on the optimistic solution set that is out there and on the art of the possible. I come back to that every day and it probably drives my staff crazy how often I say the art of the possible. That is what Mm -hmm. we are about and connecting with people about the art of the possible um, and having this incredibly inspiring ocean full of these crazy creatures and so many other things. It gives us so much material to work with um, and part of our job is to get um, both more sophisticated and more heartfelt in having that communication with people and making that connection Mm -hmm. and giving people on ramps and ways to express that value and express that heartfelt concern about the ocean in a way that um, is relatable to them. So that's part of our charge going forward. There's a new climate prize in town. It's named after Charles David Keeling, who back in 1961 published the first study showing the increase of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. Green Business Strategic Programs Director Shauna Rappaport has been looking into the Keeling Curve Prize. and Here she is to talk about it. Hey, Shauna. Hi, Joel. So what's going on here? So a global warming mitigation project recently launched this new prize. The the goal I I sense is it's really about a mechanism to both recognize and reward the most promising ideas that are really poised to, to effectively both mitigate climate change and also increase carbon uptake. So these are ideas from from small companies, big companies, or uh, non companies. The sense that I get is that it's really a mix a mix of them all, and and it's a truly global effort as well. They've got four categories in this initial year, including distributed and decentralized energy generation, energy storage, climate smart agriculture, and what they're calling the accelerator, which is really a coming attractions of more sort of culture shifting practices that could lead to kind of what they're thinking of as innovative and carbon-free emissions behaviors. So why another climate prize? Well, I actually had the opportunity to connect this week with Jackie Francis, who's the co-founder and director of the Keeling Curve Prize, and here's some of what she had to say. This is such a colossal problem that it takes huge amount of effort and the people behind it to turn this incredible problem around. And my vision for the Keeling Curve Prize is for us to fit in this space that is somewhat ignored within any business. It's this area called the Valley of Death where good projects get a little bit of funding from their founders 
and then they can't get past this next level um, on the ladder to find more funding and more visibility within their organization. You know, given how much sort of innovation is happening in each of these spaces already, what are you really hoping to see as a result of this initiative that isn't happening in the market already? You referenced the, the Valley of Death. How exactly are you planning or in, envisioning that this prize will actually help to overcome it? Well, you say something about more uh, visibility. And what we hope to see is additional public support and more education on what's going on with all kinds of, you know, regulations and issues around the climate movement. And we'd like to see more institutional invest investing. We want to be somewhat of a vetting process for bigger institutions to come in and say, oh, that organization gave these guys the stamp of approval. So let's take a look at them and see if they're worthy of, of us investing in them, making that bridge between smaller groups and bigger institutional investing. And then we want to see um, continued innovation. And we're hoping that maybe we see some su surprises, some new out-of-the-box ideas. And, you know, who knows? There, uh, we could see some really great game changers that come along the pipeline. So what do the organizers hope will happen here? Well, I think part of the goal beyond, of course, helping to mitigate and adequately address climate change and, and hopefully reverse global warming is really to identify what are some of the promising practices, businesses, uh, kinds of partnerships that are positioned to really help us achieve those goals and, and by as I think in a lot of ways, like what we do here at GreenBiz by identifying and elevating and hopefully accelerating the progress of these solutions, um, advancing progress globally on, on addressing climate. And I understand there's a deadline coming up soon. Uh, what, uh, where do people go for more information? How do they apply and when do they need to do it by? The deadline is, in fact, coming right up this Sunday, April 1st. Um, if you want to learn more information about the prize or nominate your own project or someone else, the website is kcurveprize.org forward slash prize. Thanks so much, GreenBiz Strategic Program Director, Shauna Rappaport. Thanks, Joel. And that's our 350 podcast for this week. You can go to greenbiz.com slash 350. And you'll find more about the organizations, the stories, events, and other things we've mentioned in this episode. While you're there, take a look at the link for our other podcast called Center Stage, the best of live interviews from GreenBiz events. You can email us at 350 at greenbiz.com. We always like to hear from you. GreenBiz350's director is Stephanie Joyce. Elsa Wenzel is our managing editor. We'll be back next week for another edition of GreenBiz350. Until then, from all of us here at Green Biz Group, I'm Joel McCower. Thanks for listening.